Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I wanted to make sure to mention, just in case you didn't know, that I have put together some series of webinars. One is a three-part series for people who have been affected by systems of control, people who are still in them or who are considering leaving them, people who are newly out or who've been out for a while, but who have experienced being under someone's influence, whether it is in a relationship or a workplace or a cult of any sort. And it is covering not only what to expect, sort of what people might be going through after they come out of these situations, but also what you need after you've come out of a situation like this, what kind of therapy you might be needing and support you might be needing to get, and also how you share your story with the people in your life and let them know what you've been through in a way that does not make you feel ashamed does not put the focus on you as you having something wrong with you just because someone did something to you that was without your knowledge or consent. And then the next three-part series is for the families and friends of those who have been in these situations or who still are. And honestly, there are a number of people who have asked for the webinars for others, for their therapists, for educators, for former cult members to be able to explain to their family and friends what would be good for them to know and how they can get support. And for the family and friends, it is also what you might be going through, what you might be experiencing, the feelings of frustration or helplessness, um, how you intervene in a way that doesn't push your loved one farther away from you and farther into the arms of somebody who is controlling them and manipulating them. And also how you can pierce the isolation by figuring out a way to tell your story, to let other people in your community or in your family know about what's happening without them judging you, without them saying, well, you should have stopped your loved one, or maybe it's the way you raised them that they were vulnerable to this, without it getting redirected onto you, the victim in the story as well. So you can go to my website at rachelbernsteintherapy.com and go to the drop-down menu in the upper right corner and you will see webinars at the bottom and click on that and be sure to get them for yourself or those you care about. And there are also going to be a lot of videos through the website that are going to be available for download as well on a variety of different subjects. So check it out. I hope it's helpful. Today on the show, we have Carol Murchison. Carol brings her deep legal experience to McAllister Olivarius, heading up cases involving sexual misconduct in religious, faith-based, and spiritual communities. As an investigator, she has worked to uncover sexual misconduct within the Shambhala International Lineage of Buddhism, the Sivananda Yoga Vedanta Centers, and is currently assisting other spiritual communities in bringing allegations of sexual misconduct to light. She has worked with survivors of abuse and misconduct across a number of global spiritual and religious movements 
and has extensive experience as both a litigator and an investigator. Before joining McAllister Olivarius, Carol was a partner in the Philadelphia office of Morgan Lewis and Bacchius, where she was a member of the firm's employment law practice and the director of Morgan Lewis Resources, providing training on harassment and discrimination as well as investigation services for clients. She has conducted dozens of workplace investigations and taught investigative techniques to human resource professionals at many Fortune 500 companies. She's based in New Jersey and is registered as an attorney with the Massachusetts Bar. I'm very happy to have you meet her today. Here's Carol now. I am so happy to have Carol Murchison with me today. You know, it is so nice to be able to hear from people from different perspectives. And one of the things that I get asked about a lot is what can be done? You know, here I've had these situations. I've had a horrible crime really perpetrated against me. And there's nothing it looks like I can do. You know, the legal system doesn't quite know what to do in my area or the police have said, well, you know, really, there's nothing that's definable as a crime. Um, I hear it a lot from families where their kids are over 18 and they will try to get justice. Right. And, and the police really often only know to say, well, the person is over 18 and they can make their own decisions. And the whole point usually that someone is getting involved is because they have stopped having the freedom to make their own decisions, right? I mean, it's such an irony there. And I've had where situ- situations where the police have, have literally been standing between me and the person we're trying to rescue. They, they form a blockade to kind of protect this person. And you see the person who's controlling them, taking them away, because the police really, it, they have this all really ill-defined or underdefined. Um, so it's so nice to meet someone who is doing this work, who can take charge, who can, you know, use the law on her side and on the victim's side. And so it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And I feel like you do, that it is very frustrating when we're working in these areas that there is so little justice that can be dealt out, that the legal system really doesn't work in a lot of ways for people who are victims in these kinds of what I work in, the area where I work in, Rachel, is in sexual misconduct in spiritual communities. So here we see, you know, as you know, when we're dealing with these cultic groups, in spiritual communities, we have the the same kinds of um, breeding grounds or environments for control over people that ends up in a bad way. So the particular uh, little corner of the world that I occupy is where people have been sexually assaulted in spiritual communities. And so what you're saying is so true that we think of, for example, we think of children. We think of children who've been sexually abused. And we've come to a better understanding within the law that a child cannot necessarily recognize 
or be able to come to grips with can define what has happened to them. And so we have longer what we call limitations periods or statutes of limitations for children, right, to bring these kinds of claims. But what we see in spiritual communities, in cults, is that the same kind of thing happens, but to adults who are being controlled. They're in a very high demand group and they're not able to define and come to grips with the trauma that they've experienced within the very short period of time that the law gives them. So I'll give you an example. In some states, the statute of limitations for sexual assault, no matter who is the perpetrator, is two years. And sometimes even for children, it's quite short. Whereas in Canada, I'm learning, Canada has no statute of limitations on sexual assault. And that is more in line with what we understand about dealing with, no matter what your age, dealing with people who have trauma. It takes them a long time to be able to come to grips with it. And so those are changes that we're seeing slowly, surely, just In October, President Biden signed into federal law something that abolishes the statute of limitations under the Human Trafficking Act for Children. And so we're seeing more of this coming. Uh, But right now, that's the major legal hurdle, I would say. That and the issue of consent, because we're thinking that, well, you're an adult, you consented, you didn't fight. We have some growth to do in the areas of consent. And what what we need to understand is that when there is a huge power differential, then we need to feel like consent isn't really possible. Yes, it's true. And I think there should not be a statute of limitations. I mean, because everyone has their own timeline. And also by the time someone's taken seriously too, they've usually been dismissed and dismissed and dismissed after they got the courage to say something. And they have kind of run out of resources or ideas and finally found someone who would listen, but it's five years later and now it's too late. There's also, I think, what happens in spiritual communities, as you've seen, there's this feeling that you're betraying the leader, you're betraying God, you're betraying the community. And so you have this burden on you that you can't go forward, that you can't get justice, that you can't say what happened. And there's also this code of secrecy that is so pervasive. You know, what happens here needs to stay here and people won't understand. And so don't tell. So there's already a culture of keeping this under wraps and in the shadows, which is, I think, very purposeful. I'm remembering, too, in the 80s, there was a book, The Courage to Heal, which was a very problematic book because there was, okay, on the one hand, it was empowering for people to learn that sexual abuse can happen to you and it really is a real thing and how to define sexual abuse. But there was this message that if there are swaths of your childhood that you don't remember, it's because you were sexually abused. So there was this tipping over to the other extreme of over-defining and people getting um, accused of things that they had never done. And then there is the other extreme of, you know, it's okay, don't worry. Or, mm, you know, these are teenagers just sort of, you know, being dramatic or, or you consented. And so you don't have a leg to stand on. And so finding where it's not going to be 
underreported, overreported, that, that it really is person by person. And you take the time to investigate and really find out what someone's experience was and really hear them and believe them. It's such a, unfortunately, it's such a unique thing. It shouldn't be unique. It should not be unique. I started, uh, at least in my legal career, doing investigations. And so when I hear the word investigation, then I, you know, my ears perk up because I think, why are we not doing that? For example, we have allegations of sexual misconduct against a spiritual leader. What happens is that the people who are committed to the spiritual leader say, well, that couldn't happen. I don't believe that that's true. People on the other side say, yes, it is. It could be true. But where are we in the middle where we say, let's find out if it's true. Let's investigate. And we have so many situations. And I must say, should not need to be said, but I will say that we're talking about all religions. We're not talking about just one, you know, when when I talk with people, people say, oh, the Catholic Church, because that's been, you know, in the news a great deal. But we've also seen the Southern Baptist Convention be in the news a great deal for exactly what you were referring to, which is not investigating people who came forward. That's what the investigation that finally got done actually found was that there were no, there were lots of reports of things that might or might not have been true, but they were not investigated. And so when I talk to boards of religious organizations about these kinds of issues, they say, well, but what can we do? We, we have to support our leader, you know. But no, what you want to do, what you should want to do, is to find out what happened. And that's what an investigation is, because then you know how you need to respond. Yes. And investigation is an interesting thing, too, because there are a lot of groups, controlling groups, yoga schools all over, right? Because I know we're going to talk about that, where you can report it, but to someone in-house, like that does anything ever. It's like Scientology having its own ethics department. There's also this insidious piece that I come across that you probably come across even more so because this is your area where people have their story confirmed and affirmed, but then they're told, but do you really want to destroy this for the whole community? And, and it's been wonderful for all these other people. And then, you know, these people might be in the news and this is your family and et cetera, et cetera. So yes, it happened, but really, you know, that you're given all this guilt to not go further with it. It happens all the time. And I will say that even when people don't give you that guilt explicitly by saying those things, that survivors of these things in spiritual communities have that guilt anyway, because many of them feel like the teachings themselves have been valuable. And many of them are second generation in a particular religious group. So they are really having to leave a community, which is in many ways the biggest loss that survivors experience. They experience oftentimes an assault which is traumatic. They experience institutional betrayal of the organization and the community that they were involved in that then wanted to silence them. And they experience then a loss, which for many is a loss of an entire community. 
And gee, those are three very difficult things to lose. So what I see when people are willing to come forward about these kinds of things, oh, and we haven't even talked about the shame of, did I consent? Did I uh, did I give something off? You know, the typical kind of thing in any of these situations where did I invite this? I mean, even in addition to that kind of thing, we have all of these other things stacked against people who many of them are coming forward and looking for creating accountability for these organizations, some kind of justice for themselves, some kind of opportunity to have a voice. And to be able to say what happened to them and to be able to have people listen to them and for people to say, I'm going to hold this organization accountable. As imperfect as it is for many of these organizations that are not able to police themselves, they're not able to look internally and say, is there something wrong here? Then the justice system, and particularly in my view, at least the civil justice system, not the criminal justice system, but the civil justice system is a way to bring some sense of accountability to organizations, particularly who are covering these things up or enabling them, allowing them to happen. It's important. It's important that not just the person who was the perpetrator be held accountable, particularly in situations where organizations are aware that this is happening and they have the kind of response that you just spoke about, which is, well, but do you really want this to happen? Or no, you misunderstood. You know, the one that I hear all the time and I think is you will recognize as a a kind of um, a cultic kind of statement, the guru knows what's best for you. He only does what is a blessing for you. So even though it may appear to you that he is sexually assaulting you, it's actually for your benefit. That does some severe twisting to people's minds, and it makes it very difficult for them to come forward. So those women who do, believe me, we owe them a tremendous debt of gratitude because they are rolling a rock uphill, right? Oh, they are. They are. It's a thankless job. I worked with a number of women who were in La Luz del Mundo who were from young girls. They were trafficked in underground tunnels to the pastor and had to buy their own kind of sexy clothes on their own, their own dime to please him when they're eight. Not, I mean, there are stories that I can't share here because I just can't share them, but also they'd be way too disturbing. I'm sure that happens to you too, where you hear so much and you think, okay, what audience am I saying this to? And let me hold back. But just to, you know, give kind of a flavor of the awfulness without going into it, a lot of them really felt that they were meeting with God and that they were specially chosen. And so I think I I want to ask you about this. And then I I want to ask you about your interest in it. And then we'll come back to talking more about the law. Because I have some legal questions for you, I realize things that I haven't been absolutely clear about and I would love to know. I think defining something, saying what abuse is, that it's not. Um, a transfer of energy and it's not, you know, receiving the blessing and, you know, that the guru knows what's good for you. And even abuse, how to define it just in general, that the way you're being treated is not for your benefit. It's not a lesson you need to be taught. It's abuse. 
neglect also, um, being kept from being able to eat and being punished. I mean, these, I think people leave and these things are underreported because they don't know that that word applies to what they went through. So they don't know there's legal recourse necessarily. No, that's right. I, I think that's absolutely true. That's very hard for people who've been in under a kind of coercive mind control, you know, where people have told them over and over, this is good for you. This is, you know, and they've lost their voice literally and figuratively and their agency to some extent. So at some point, often, at least the people that I am working with who are people who are engaging in a lawsuit they're engaging in a civil lawsuit, they have come to realize, or somebody else has told them. So it isn't uncommon, and that's why the statutes of limitations are so confining and wrong, um, because I have examples where it's taken, you know, eight, 10 years, even more until they begin to talk about what happened and they talk with somebody else who says to them, that was a sexual assault, but they've not seen it through that lens, right? They've seen it through, this was done for my benefit. This was part of the teachings. It isn't often until people get out and they have conversations with other people that they're able to say, wait a minute, we feel this. You know, I really believe that we feel these things in our bodies and that the trauma work that, you know, that brilliant people are doing in the book, like the body keeps the score, that we know it somewhere in our bodies, but it takes a long time for it to come work its way up to our conscious mind. And then we know. And so I agree with you. I don't feel there should be a statute of limitations. I don't think that. Uh, that there is a time limit for some people. Some people know immediately. Other people do not. And I, I think that there's not a problem with allowing people to have their own time limit on the trauma that they have endured. Exactly. And it's so multi-layered also within cultic systems or even just within a family system where this is rampant. There can be this sense which you've seen, I'm sure, which is that suffering is given a value. And so you are more holy, you're more able to be purified, you're closer to Jesus, whatever else, if you've suffered. So it is for you and it's to, uh, you know, solidify your chances of going to heaven. So then if someone says, were you abused? Well, I don't know, because I'm actually feeling that this was my protection not my abuse. Uh, so, right, you have to make your way through all of the misrepresentation of it in order to be able to get some sort of justice. And so I think, yeah, I want to be able to talk about what your interest is in this, and I'm so glad that you have it. A couple of years ago, I had uh, an attorney, Alan Shefflin, on who had introduced this idea or uh, reinforced this idea of undue influence to help the courts understand. And I think terms like Stockholm Syndrome and all of the more legally definable terms help, but it's still, it's not quite doing it across the board. So let me stop here and ask you about your interest in this. 
I have had an unusual route to this because I am an attorney and I worked for a large firm. I was doing employment law at the time when uh, sexual harassment became a kind of a more, we had more awareness of that. In fact, it was during Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas hearings that we first heard this. And it's so interesting how that happened when you think about it is that immediately uh, I was practicing law in Massachusetts. And uh, I don't know if this is true, but someone said that the the tele- they had never had a sexual harassment claim in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts until Anita Hill testified before Congress. And that was in the early 90s. And immediately they had to put in like a new telephone system because the, the telephone system broke down of people who were calling in. So when we heard it, we recognized it. My own mother-in-law, I remember I was in California during that time. And you know, she was probably 70 at the time, and she remembered being sexually harassed in her working career. And so it was something that everyone had kind of experienced or seen or known of, but hadn't had the name. So when we named it and we saw it, then we began to act against it. And so I was an employment lawyer. I started doing training for employers uh, large companies on how to have a policy, how to institute processes where people could come forward, all of these kinds of things to avoid harassment litigation and, and to avoid the issues in the workplace. So I did that. I enjoyed it very much. I retired from that. And my husband and I moved to Mexico, where we lived for quite some time. And during that time, I continued to do training for the law firm that I was with. But in 2018, during the Harvey Weinstein thing, I did a lot of investigations back into the investigation uh, role, again, uh, where our companies would say, we have this allegation and we can't investigate it internally. Back to what you were saying before, right? And so bring in somebody from the outside and I would investigate and I would come to a conclusion. And at that same time, I heard about an allegation against a man who was the head of a big international Buddhist organization called Shambhala. They were headquartered in Halifax. They had been in Boulder and I had lived near Boulder. And so I had kind of known who they were. And so I had a conversation with the woman who was doing that project. And I said to her, you need to talk with them about doing an investigation. You're making allegations, but somebody needs to collect the facts and be able to investigate. And she said, well, I would do that, except they're not speaking to me. So I said, I think it was the first Zoom call I had ever been on, Rachel, which was (laughs) shows you how long ago that was since we've all been on Zoom, living our lives on Zoom since then. I said to her, well, all right, I'll let me look at what you have. And I'll try to investigate it. But I'm not going back 30 years. I'm not investigating people who are dead. I I need to have something more current than that. And immediately women became to come, uh, began to come forward who had allegations of sexual assault by the leader of the organization. And so I found myself thrust into a full investigation as full as I could make it, knowing that I couldn't really go into the organization. I didn't have that kind of a mandate. 
recommended, finally recommended an investigation. They did an investigation. They hired their own outside counsel to do that, which was correct. And they found that, yes, there had been a lot of sexual misconduct. That got a lot of press, that particular thing. It was one of the first, I think, Buddhist kinds of encounters that had a lot of press around it. And so from that, I had someone else who knew somebody else who said, well, the same thing is, it's the same thing has happened with, an, with Anita Hill. We named it. And then women said, oh, well, wait, that's not the name I gave to it when I was inside this organization. But now that I hear what you're saying, I recognize that it happened to me. And so then I've had a steady stream of investigations that I have done pro bono. So this has been my my really, I would say, four years of what I feel like was really giving back, you know, for having had the privilege of having a, a legal education and the ability to do it. And then I met a woman whose name is Anne Oliverius. And Anne has been uh, fighting the good fight on women's rights for a very long time. And she was involved in some cases. And I began to say, well, wait a minute, is there a legal option here? And so I would talk to Anne. And then I would talk to a woman that I had done an investigation for. And I would say, I think this is credible. I think this is true. Will you take this case? And so eventually, Anne asked me to come and join the law firm. And litigate these cases. So I've had a kind of back alley route. <laughs> you know, it happens a lot. If you haven't had the, the experience yourself, often people coming to this, I know me too, we've had sort of circuitous routes and that's okay. Cause I think along the way you can pull from what you've learned in other arenas and see how it applies here, which I think is really good information. And I, you know, I, I did a talk on women in cults uh, well, a couple months ago. And when I was doing my research going back in my files, you know, it was good um, about 60%, more than 50, about 60% of the women talked about um, sexual abuse of some sort. I mean, it's a huge percentage. And they often, when they got involved as adults, they talked about how they were often made to sign. NDAs. And they felt that they couldn't come forward. That's the other reason that there shouldn't be a statute of limitations. And I had a legal question for you about NDAs, because uh, when people sign them and, and they're, they're rampant, they're big in the large group awareness trainings, they're big in yoga schools, they're big. You know, the NDAs are all over the place. Is it true that they are legally binding uh, unless you can prove that they were signed under duress or without full disclosure or something was missing in the way it was handled? Well, they are often legally binding. Yes, there are ways that they can be found to be not legally binding. And you've named some of them. Like, I was under duress. I was under a disability. I was unconscious. You know, I mean, things that would make it impossible for you to have the kind of mental clarity that you would need to be able to make a decision. I know that recently there's been a movement, of course, to outlaw them. And so, for example, in Canada, I understand they're looked upon with disfavor by the courts. 
And of course, a person who has a lawyer and is not signing something like that without any legal advice, which I highly recommend against, you know, a a lawyer will tell you that there is nothing that makes you have to sign an NDA. This is part of, you know, we've always had like, let's say in the corporate world, if if I had a discrimination claim and the company was going to settle a claim with me, I would be asked to sign a general release, which says kind of like, this is the end. You know, this everything that you have to complain about is wrapped up in this settlement agreement. And there's nothing more that's out there that you can come back and sue us for. And in there, there might be a statement. In fact, there often, most often probably would be a statement that says, and I'm not going to talk about what happened. But you can negotiate that. What I see is that uh, our clients, we are listening to what they want. We have clients who say, I will not sign an NDA or I won't sign an NDA that doesn't allow me to talk about what happened to me publicly. And so that has to be negotiated. And like any settlement, like any negotiation, it's an assessment of risk on both sides. It's the plaintiff's right to say that they don't want to sign that. Some will say, you know what? I've been harmed so much. I don't want to talk about it. I do want money as reparations for what has happened to me that's going to help me heal from what happened to me. And that's okay too. So for the person who doesn't care about speaking out and who doesn't feel that that's important to them, then that's what we listen to. For the person who says, it is important to me that I am not silenced again, then we listen to that. So in the end, it's the decision of the, the, the person who's coming forward. And they are generally women, although it is not exclusively women. Right. It's funny. I had written that down uh, to ask you about. You know, that there is someone who told me recently that she had to sign an NDA to uh, go into a large group awareness training meeting. She was wanting to get over some of the emotional baggage she had from other experiences. And she was told to go to this workshop this weekend. And so you waited in line, you paid, and it was non-refundable. Then they told you about the NDA. And there were 100 people behind her and they were all waiting to get in because they, if they were late, they were told, they wouldn't be able to get in. That was just a ploy to get people to rush through signing the NDAs. You want to, you always want to ask why you're being told what you're being told in these situations, right? These are organizations that make money off of people. They would never have a cutoff. They just add more chairs to the room. So she said that she wasn't actually uh, given time to read it. She was told that if she read it, that that would be symbolizing what has brought her here, that she is paranoid, that she she's not open to receiving the gifts and trusting of the space, blah, blah, blah. And if she had to read it, they were actually going to enroll her in a pre-class before she could even enter that room because it showed that she had these other disorders. I mean, they had it all wrapped up so that she had to sign it. And she did. She had no idea what it said. She actually didn't know what she was signing. And so then she wanted to sue. She wound up needing to be picked up. She wound up in the hospital, actually, because of her experiences there in a psych unit. 
and she wanted to sue and it became a very dicey thing. But I think people don't realize, even if it's presented as you're going to be protecting the group from something or whatever else, you're just signing your voice away. Yes. And you know, here's the thing. I have a tremendous amount of empathy for the situation that she was in, because honestly, I would probably have been one of the people who signed it because there were a hundred people standing behind me and I didn't want to keep them waiting. I have to say that would probably be me. And so I have a great deal of sympathy for that. But I think that what we need to have more of is that sense that when we have a conflict, like I'm being told to sign this. I can't read it. That doesn't seem right to me. That's on one side of it. And the other side of the hundred people who are waiting that we just, we need to step away. We need to listen to ourselves. And that's what we're seeing in these spiritual communities that are really abusing people in many, many ways, not just sexually, is that they are trying to convince people that the voice that we have internally and externally is not a good one. And that's not true. When we have something come up that says, maybe, Carol, maybe you should just step out of line, let the other 100 people go by, that's the voice that's true. That's who we are. And all of this stuff that comes up that says, well, that's just your neuroses that's projecting. It's it's like, honestly, right. no. <laughs> just no. Uh-huh. Just no. Right. I mean, I think that's why so many of these cultic groups have an all-out war against your critical mind, right? Because that is your initial thought. Like, hmm, something's off here. People who leave too, I'm sure you've seen it, they will have an initial thought or initial feeling. And then you see them kind of cloud over with how they were told to reinterpret that or that it's something that disarms them immediately. Like they had fight in them and then mm, it just went away. Well, what what is that? That trained fed response to these moments that really is going to keep them from getting getting justice? Yeah, you know, I think part of it is I did a, a training with a, a Zen teacher, a woman, and she's a psychologist also, uh, Grace Shearson. And she has taught me that community cohesion is tremendously difficult for us as human beings to break. And so the more cohesion that there is, and if you think about it, this is the kind of um, indicator of some of the cults is that you have to break your relationship with your family, your former life, your friends, your occupation. And then you are in this community to which you are totally glued because you have nothing else. It's not the same, for example, as being in a religion where you go to church on Sunday, you see people, you smile at them. Maybe you go to a a service or a meeting during the week, or you're on this committee or that committee, but you're still living in a community. When you have nothing else, that cohesion means that you begin to look for reasons why you don't have to rock the boat why you don't have to break that cohesion. Someone told me a long time ago, I thought it was very interesting. They said, um, if you look within these groups and the people who are within the group do not have three or four or five people that they are friendly with outside of the group, then it stands a good chance of being a cult, right? Because when you're with people who are outside of your 
group of cohesion, you begin to get different ideas. You know, maybe that's even, I mean, clearly that's one of the reasons why these organizations are so successful. They're isolating people from outside ideas under the guise that outside ideas are a bad thing, that uh, you will not be able to survive in the outside world because it's terrible out there. Well, yeah, we have a lot of problems out here in the outside world, but (laughs) there are a lot of problems within these groups as well. Oh my goodness, yes. It's so interesting because... I hear something often that feels so uniform across the board, which is I was shocked to find out that the world was an okay place and the people in it were nice and they actually cared about me and that I could have an unconditional acceptance, unconditional love for the first time, even with the world. I mean, God knows we have right. It's exactly stuff, right. Right. Yes, I know um, exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Right. And and people also, when they leave, they miss having built-in answers. They miss having a built-in community. There are real things that people are now making a departure from that are really hard, but they get to be themselves for the first time. They don't have to be a chameleon to be liked. They don't have to talk like and dress like and be like, and they get to say what's on their mind and they get to find out there's this thing called the constitution. (laughs) (laughs) And laws. And laws. And laws. And they have freedom of speech and freedom of movement. What? You know, it seems so. So let's move to talking about the men and boys, because I I was involved with the, I mean, it wasn't my idea to do the raid on the FLDS compound, let me just say, but they brought me in to help with the social workers who were working. And I met some of the lost boys who were kicked out. I've worked with boys who were in the Children of God who were feeling suicidal. They couldn't protect the girls and the women and their mothers. But there are a lot of boys and a lot of men who are sexually abused and don't feel like they can report it. And I've also seen with some domestic abuse situations that the woman was the abuser and the man had learned you don't hit a woman. And a man who's a foot taller, the police come in, make assumptions, he gets arrested, even though he's the one all bruised and battered. So what do we need to know or what is the law doing to help address what men have really gone without, without feeling like they have representation or what would help them feel like they can be brave enough to say, even though I'm supposed to be strong enough to defend myself, I was still attacked. I was still raped. Yeah. Well, so first of all, it's important to understand that the law in my mind is kind of two things. So there's the law. So it's written down on a piece of paper and I could read it to you and it would tell you what sexual assault is and it would tell you what rape is and it would tell you all of those things. And it would not say one single thing about being male or female. It would not say this only applies to women. It just doesn't. That's the law. But there's also the law that gets applied or the law that gets filtered down through the processes, through the cultural messages that we have, many of which you've just alluded to. I should have been stronger. This may, maybe I'm, maybe this makes me homosexual and this is something that isn't. Um, you know, that isn't a positive thing in my community. You know, there are all kinds of messages in the same way that women get messages about their cultural place in the universe. Men do too. So the law 
doesn't apply differently to men than to women. So that's the first thing that when we're talking about rape, when we're talking about any kind of sexual assault, for example, it it doesn't anywhere say, well, you know, you men are just going to have to live with it. So the first thing is that people should understand that the law is there to apply to them. It doesn't preclude them. How it gets rolled down for example, in the criminal law system, we get rolled down to the level of the police. So many women will not go to the police. I can imagine that a man might not want to go and bear his soul to a police officer. And yet that's the entry point to the criminal justice system. The entry point to the civil justice system is different, right? So if we talk about these two systems kind of side by side, like two rails, one rail is criminal justice. It leads to a, if you get through it, which amazingly few sexual assault victims actually make it to the end of the line and get any accountability, the accountability is only one thing. Somebody either goes to jail or they get some kind of punishment, one person, generally speaking. So this does not address the issue of organizations that are allowing these things to happen. Whereas the civil justice system, you have your own lawyer and the remedies are more, well, they're more diverse. One of them is, of course, money. Nobody goes to jail going through the civil justice system. What it says is that someone has been harmed and I can put a dollar value on that harm and you need to pay for it in the very same way as when we were talking about having leaks in our <laughs> in Maybe our houses. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. My leak was due to my neighbor's system and my neighbor has insurance and he has to pay. It's very similar to that concept. There was harm done. Now we're going to put a dollar value on it, even though that's hard. We are able to do that in some kind of imperfect way, and you are going to pay that. And by paying that, what we hope is that you learn, you, the organization, that you can't do that anymore. And what we also learn is that we get to go out and say to others who are listening, hello, but you can't do that anymore either. Right. So if you're doing this, there is a consequence. That's what I feel that the civil justice system can do. Also, an imperfect system for survivors. But I don't see the criminal justice system as really serving people. If you look at the cases that, you know, uh, that are notorious, for example, the Stanford swimmer case, the survivor there went all the way through all of the hoops and obstacles. And at the end, the judge said, oh, you know, I don't really want to send him to jail. So it's hard. It's a hard system. And neither one of them are perfect. But what I would say, you know, to men as well as to women is that the hurdles that are in the civil justice system, at least in the beginning, have to do with the limitations problem. So we're going to say, well, when did this happen? You know, and then we're going to look at where it happened. And then we're going to look at, is there still time for you to bring a claim? So they're rather impersonal in a sense. They're not having to spill your heart out and have somebody decide whether you're an okay person or not. They're more about the system than they are about you. Harvey Weinstein is going through the civil justice system as well as the criminal justice system. There are two prongs there. But for me and a a great many of the survivors that I represent, 
Jail isn't the most important thing because that's just one person. It's really about the organization. You know, I'm sure you find this too, Rachel, that the trauma of a sexual assault is a terrible trauma. And the silencing and the covering up and the gaslighting that happens by the organization is an equally devastating trauma for people. And so being able to say to an organization, I'm finding my voice and I'm telling my story, it's a big deal for people. It's not available to everyone and it should be, but if it's available, then it it certainly is worth people thinking about taking that route. There's also something that happens when people see how victims are dealt with in the court system. They either get encouraged or dissuaded. And it happened even with the Nexium trial, where there are women who talk to me about the trauma they experienced, not only in the group, but that during the trial, the photos of their parts that they needed to send to the leader were beamed up on the on a screen. I mean, we're right there on TV for everyone. And they were just there for a long time. And so everyone in the courtroom could see these uh, because they had to show the evidence. And these women were thinking, take that down. That's my whatever. Stop stop showing this to the whole court. So anyone who is worried about that happening, I mean, you know, they they might think, I don't want to be put through that. At the same time, they're very happy that there was a trial in and of itself. It's just that the, they need to, they need people like you yeah. who can say, yeah, no, stop that. Right. right? Just no. You know, one thing I do want to say that comes to my mind is that we do think of civil litigation, for example, in these situations as leading to a trial. But statistically speaking, they often do not. As a matter of fact, in the vast majority of cases, they do not. When a survivor makes that decision that they're going to take this action, they're really, in a way, saying, I'm going to take back my voice and I'm going to get my agency and I'm going to make this act. And that it has a cathartic effect in and of itself. And so what I want people to recognize is that it doesn't always mean, in fact, it very rarely means that you're going to go into a courtroom. You have to be prepared that that may happen, right? You can't start out saying, well, you know, I'm only going to go so far in this and then I'm not going to go to court. But it often doesn't happen that way. And you do have your own lawyers. We do the best that we can. You know, we think of ourselves as being survivor center, trauma-informed, as much as we can within the legal system that we are working within. We're not always able to do that. You know, that's, that's the reality of it, but we try. Right. Okay. So I want you to be able to focus on what you're uncovering within the yoga community. And before that, I would love for you to define for the listeners a couple of terms and terms that are now, I think, in our lexicon and for really good reason, but it'd be good to know what goes under that rubric, what qualifies. So the terms are human trafficking and slavery. Right. Because human trafficking, thank goodness, we are now becoming aware. It's still underreported. It's still covered up. There are a lot of people who don't come forward, but there are agencies now that help people like the Avery Center and, and other places that help human trafficking. And now we have more statistics on overall slavery all over the world and also what def- kind of what constitutes that. But I think it'd be great if you could define those for us. Yes. 
Okay. So let me start with human trafficking. So I know that most people will be very surprised when I say that human trafficking is a very, very broad claim. So until Harvey Weinstein was charged civilly. When I read that in the New York Times, probably, that the claim of human trafficking was allowed to go forward, the judge said, yes, this claim can go forward against Harvey Weinstein. And I thought, what part of this story haven't I understood? Because I didn't know that Harvey Weinstein was trafficking women. Because in my mind, trafficking was stereotypically speaking, you know, Central American women being put in the back of a truck, driven through Mexico, up through the border into the United States. That's what I thought human trafficking was. It is much broader than that. To be human trafficked is really to be, in very simple general terms, it is when you are promising that if this person has sex with you, you will give them a step up on the path to enlightenment. And that happens in some kind of interstate commerce way. And that connection to interstate commerce is very, very tiny. And so, wow, that's a very big claim that applies to a lot of situations. And the way that it applied to Harvey was that it was said that he promised women acting jobs for engaging with sex and with him. So as somebody who's spent a lot of time in the corporate world and in the, in the world of sexual harassment, I, I would call that quid pro quo. This for that. I will give you this if you have sex with me. So we're very familiar that with that in workplace environments, we know that that's a no-no. And it turns out that the at least the Federal Human Trafficking Act in, incorporates that. In the spiritual world or in any other world, but here's where we see it in the spiritual world, it's that I'm going to, you know, you will be more enlightened if you engage in this practice, which it may look like sex to you, but no, it's not really sex. But yes, it really is. That can be human trafficking in certain situations. Of course, like all things legal, it's not that simple. But that's the kind of general, you know, kind of plain language understanding of it. So when we're seeing, and I think this was one of the things that uh, that we wanted to talk about, is we're seeing yoga organizations kind of being called to account. When we think of yoga as being an extremely pure kind of thing to be involved in, and yet we've seen headlines of 3HO was involved and there was one in Thailand. There's all kinds of reports of allegations of sexual assault in yoga communities. In those situations, there's also the possibility of forced labor because these are businesses that build their business model on the free labor called selfless service of other people. And so when we look at that, we can see some possibilities that human trafficking is being engaged in, as well as forced labor. 
So slavery isn't one, it's just, human trafficking is just like the word slavery. When we think of slavery, we think of the Civil War, we think of something else. It has much broader meanings in addition to that one. Okay. Thank you. That's really helpful. And it's really nice to know that it is so broad and that people can find their experience within it. And then they know they might have some recourse because they know there's a term for it that's legally recognizable. Yes. That's right. And that there's a claim that's legally recognizable. And it, by the way, has a longer statute of limitations than other claims. And so, you know, all of this is very complicated, obviously. But nonetheless, I think for a lot of people just saying, I'm going to say my story to somebody and then see where that goes. There are lots of possibilities for claims. I should mention to you that, for example, in, I think, 13 states in the United States and the District of Columbia, the issue of consent that we kind of alluded to before, where people say, oh, well, maybe I consented. I, you know, it, it, Consent is not a defense in situations between a clergy person and a parishioner, just as it isn't between a teacher and a student a psychotherapist and a patient. So in those states, consent is not even able to be a defense. It's not on the table. So you can't consent because of the power imbalance between those two positions. Okay. This consent is so interesting. Yeah. We keep coming back to that. It's so tricky and it's, it is taken away from people. Even if you're asked, you know, are you okay with this? You've been taught that you can't say no. (laughs) Okay. So thanks for asking, but I really don't have a choice, but you've made me feel like I chose it. So thanks a lot. And then I don't have a leg to stand on. I don't have recourse because it was my idea somehow. You know, honestly, Rachel, sometimes that's true. Sometimes there is no recourse for those situations. The legal system is imperfect. Ultimately, if things go to trial, they go in front of a jury and somebody along the line is making an assessment, whether it's in the civil trial or a criminal trial, about whether the elements of the claim can be proven. And so some of these things are issues that society and our culture has to address before our legal system can kind of get in line with it. Do you know what I mean? Because we have 12 people on a jury. They are raised in a culture that either says this is okay or it's not okay. And they're the people who are going to make a determination. So society has to change as well before we can have a kind of a a more perfect legal system for survivors. Oh, that's so well said. Uh, So tell us about the yoga community and yoga instructors and what have you come to find out are the issues here and what can be done? Just explore that with us as we're finishing up. Well, so first of all, again, in my mind, I don't do yoga, but my daughter does yoga. So when she comes to visit me, then she goes to the yoga studio and she does yoga. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about big organizations that have ashrams. And as you undoubtedly know, during the last probably one or two decades, these have become big businesses. So all of us who are overstressed, we would love to go to an ashram in the in the Bermudas or in India or someplace and have a yoga retreat. And that is great. But those organizations, as we see from like Yogi Bhajan is one, 
We see, I think in 1993, the New Yorker did a a very long, extensive article on these uh, alleged sexual abuses of uh, Swami Muktananda. Uh, Shivananda Yoga has had an investigation into the sexual assaults of Swami Vishnu Devananda, other Swamis within the organization. So these are generally the kinds of things that you would recognize when I say them as being cult-oriented markers is what we see there, which is there is no way to dissent. There's no way to have another opinion. There's no process in place for complaints. In fact, complaints are dealt with in exactly the same way that you said before, which is they are psychologized or pop psychologized, if there is even such a word, into, well, this is just your neurosis or your past life and you have to, you cannot have any negative thoughts you can only have positive thoughts. You are not allowed, My one of my favorite ones is you cannot gossip, which is only applied to if you say to another person, I was assaulted by Swami so-and-so, that's gossip. And so you cannot do that because it's expressing a negative thought. I mean, these are stereotypical kinds of things, but I've seen all of them. I've seen this will bring you bad karma. The guru knows best. Everything that he does is a blessing. And so if he did this to you, it's because it's helping you remove the blockages and put you on a fast track to enlightenment. It's come to the point that if someone offers me a fast track to enlightenment, that I'm, you know, I'm running in the other direction because it's generally not there. We have secrets. When things have to be kept secret, then that's a very big marker. So we're going to engage in this practice, but you're not going to be able to tell anybody. Um, You're special. You have a special um, uh, a kind of you're more enlightened than other people are. And so we're going to have a special relationship. These are all the kinds of things that we see there. A big focus on celibacy, interestingly enough, in a lot of these religions and certainly in yoga, which is very interesting because it leads one to perhaps feel that one is safe there from sexual advances and overtures and other kinds of complications, but people are not really celibate. So this happens both in yoga and I've certainly seen it in Buddhist communities among monks. There's a different understanding about what is celibate and what isn't. When the rules apply, when the teachings apply only in one direction, That's another marker, I think, that we've seen in yoga as well. One must have compassion for all things, except I don't, as the teacher, have to have compassion for you. If the rules do not go two ways, if the teachings do not operate in two ways, then I think it's fair to ask if they're being abused, that the teachings may be fine, but the teacher may not be. Yes, the rules do need to apply equally in every situation, in corporations, 
they're the law is the law and guidelines are guidelines and what's ethical what's safe that applies to everyone equally at least it should absolutely and i i think that part of the problem is that in these closed organizations if you think about an ashram it's a closed circle it's separate from the outside world it has no accountability to the outside world and for many people that that I have interviewed and listened to their stories, it happens in a place where they're not able to get out the outside world. And to your issue about forced labor, when people have people come in and then they're told things like, you know, the outside world is bad. So really, you stay here with us because we have this simple life and we're going to take care of you your whole life but you're being paid nothing. And after you're there a year or two years, I I interviewed a woman who had been in an ashram for three, four years. And she said at that time, it was no longer possible for her to get out. And she began to name the things that she didn't have. She didn't have a credit card. She didn't have credit. She didn't have money. She could not get an apartment because she did not have a bank account. And so were it not for the uh, generosity of her friends, she could not have left. When you cannot leave and you're in this closed circle, it is an environment that is uh, ripe for abuse. Right. And then I think back to the term slavery, right? You are not free to leave. Yes. There's maybe not a person with a gun standing at the door keeping you from going, but there are other ways for people to be ensnared into these situations where they end up with nothing. I think about how many people were raised, and not every cult is on a compound, but how many people were raised on compounds where there were guards, or at least there were gates that were locked. And the justification was always that it's protecting them from the world, that it's for everyone's benefit. And they can feel safe within it. But yeah, you always want to question why you can't leave and that maybe it's not for your benefit. And I guess define a lot of things like redefine talking as gossip. Yeah, then you're going to think you're doing something wrong. But no, if you're just telling your truth, that's not gossip. Right. And it's very, um, you know, these kinds of things are very insidious. Uh, One time in a training, a woman said that in her particular, this happened to be a Buddhist community, but it could happen anywhere, that there was a young man who said to people that he had been sexually assaulted by the teacher. No one would listen to him, right? And so then he told more people. And eventually they did an investigation and they found out that the teacher had indeed sexually assaulted this young man. But you know what was said then? They did nothing because the two infractions, one was a crime, by the way, but they were equal. He had gossiped. So you see how this sets up a system in which everything is turned on its head and it's able to be done because there is this isolation. There is a person who is untouchable in the sense that they cannot be, they cannot be wrong. And when you're in that kind of situation, it's just a matter of time before that becomes abusive. And I think back to the statute of limitations. So if you are told it's a crime for you to be quote unquote gossiping, right? Then you're not going to tell. 
No, that's right. So you we internalize all these things. And you know, the, the the shame of it really is, Rachel, that when people come out of these things and they finally realize and they want to get their voice, the worst part of it is that they blame themselves. They say, then they say, why didn't I see what this was? You know, it's because we're human beings and we trust. Because we need to trust. It's one of the things that helps us actually further civilization. And so we're doing the thing that is inherent with us to do within us. And then we come out and we find out that we trusted the wrong person. And then instead of blaming them, we blame ourselves. Amazing that we, you know, we've had to deal with the court system saying, well, what were you wearing and why did you walk down that street alone? And we're still repeating that. I mean, we're still replaying that, aren't we? A lot of us. Right. So you're right about society really needing to shift in order for this to come full circle and really for there to be headway in every way. Okay, so interesting. It it's been so it's been so good and important to talk to you because it's it's good for people and for me to learn about the limitations but also what is now being provided and what people can say about what happened to them and that now that means they might have recourse and that it's understandable to i mean an important message from this is it's understandable why you might not be talking and to not then blame yourself on top of it that you let someone get away with something there's something embedded in your thinking or was embedded in your thinking to keep you silent. So I wonder if you can guide people to look at the work that you're doing and where can they find you and, you know, just learn more. Absolutely. So um, I don't know, you can certainly put my email address. And so I'll give you that. It's C Murchison. So it's M-E-R-C-H-A-S-I-N at M, like Mary C-O law.com. And so you can go to McAllister Oliverius, which is the law firm that I am with now. And we have, we're developing a whole new practice group, you know, so in law firms, there are practice groups, there are corporate practice groups and, you know, immigration practice groups, but we have a practice group on helping survivors of sexual misconduct in spiritual communities. That is what we do. You know, we take classes on trauma and we understand and we try to understand our clients. And um, basically you can go there. You can email me. You There's on the firm's website, there's a, there's a place where you can email into the firm. And, you know, always it's about just opening up a dialogue with people and seeing you know some people start and they say i just want to talk with you about talking and that's okay that is okay right oh thank you i'm so glad you do this work it's so important and it was so wonderful to talk to you thank you we feel the same about you thank you rachel delightful to be here yes and i'm sure we'll be in touch and i'll be referring people to your firm Uh, i already have 10 in mind One more thing before you go. It is really reassuring to have people like Carol Murchison around 
people who are attorneys who help people get justice, be reminded of their rights, not only is this a very good sign for people who have been harmed that they're going to be able to get representation and they have the law on their side, but it is a good warning sign for people who do this to other people that there may come a time that they have to pay the price for what they've done, or they might get stopped and not be able to do it anymore. One of the things that is so confusing for so many people is that they are given this impression that they went along with something. So it was okay somehow for people to do things to them because they feel that they made the decision to be there or they just didn't fight hard enough to say no or to leave. And so we are all people who have been in this kind of situation where we have put up with far more than we should have, where we said yes when we meant no, where we went along with things knowing the whole time that something was really wrong here, but we felt trapped. We felt pushed into silence. We felt that we were going to be harming people around us somehow if we made too much of a fuss, making people feel bad about the situation they put us in, even making the perpetrator feel bad that somehow in these kinds of situations, a lot of people are made to feel that they're responsible for other people's feelings, including the people who harm them. It is an incredible thing when you see this kind of system that is like a perpetrator's playground where they know they can get away with things because it's built into the system. They know they can do what they want. And you as the victim, you as the person who has to endure it, is someone who is going to be called on the carpet if you have a bad reaction or if you say something about it. There are a lot of people too who will say, I didn't want to say anything because, you know, this organization has been good for so many people or mm, I don't want to take it away from people who might then second guess their involvement if they feel like it's given them something or it's given them a relationship to God or whatever it is about. So there's this great weight on people's shoulders, this sense of responsibility, and you're responsible for everyone else except for you. And that's when a lot of things can happen to you. A lot of things that happen to you really without your consent, even though you think you gave it. Just standing there enduring something doesn't mean you necessarily gave your consent. It's that you didn't necessarily say no because you felt like you couldn't, but you didn't say yes. You didn't say okay. So I think that it's an important distinction. And I think it's something that people can think about for themselves. If you've been separated, let's say, from your parents at a young age, where were your models for how to be with other people, what a relationship is, how people who love you treat you? Because you've been abandoned or pulled away from the people who love you. So what does love mean? And if someone says that by hurting you, they're loving you or showing their care and showing their love, how can you argue with it? You don't know really how to define it. And you also don't know what abuse looks like and how it is defined. And so people are so in the dark about their basic rights and about how to define what's happening to them and if it's okay and if it's not. I've been involved in situations where there have been raids on compounds. And one of the most surprising things for the people I worked with to find out about was that they had rights, that there was a constitution, that there was a legal system that 
could protect them, that there were police officers who could run interference for them that hadn't been their experience or they hadn't heard about it at all. And so if you don't think there's really anything that can be done about what's happening to you and no one cares, why would you say anything at all? I'm very happy to know that the statute of limitations has been extended in so many of these situations because of the things that I talked to Carol about, about people just not being able to define it or not feeling they have the right to be angry or being too afraid to come forward because there's going to be backlash. And there often is backlash. Think about all the people who have come forward, male and female, who said something bad happened to me and had to go through the response not being, I'm so sorry, let's see what we can do about it, but rather, are you sure? Can you prove it? You have a history of something that makes you seem suspicious, that makes us discount you. Why did you put yourself in that situation? Are you sure you didn't choose it? So many questions. And it is truly awful for people to have to go through that. And so people give up even sometimes before they start to get justice. So I want to put out to you that if you know of other people who do this kind of work, who are helping to represent people who are harmed, who care about this, who get involved and are involved in community organizations, anything where people's rights are being attended to because they were taken away, where people are being supported in their pursuit of being able to use the legal system to defend themselves for any kind of reparations, to be able to shut down an organization that causes harm from start to finish, let me know. Let us hear no on the show because we want to be able to have resources for people. We want to be able to let people know that they are not alone in this and they don't have to fend for themselves. When you're involved in a cultic system and when you're involved in a controlling relationship, you learn to fend for yourself. And the other thing that is surprising to people not only is to find out that they have rights and there's a constitution and there's a legal system to protect them potentially, but just that, that there are others who can help them. They don't have to deal with everything by themselves like they used to within their systems of control. It's so nice to know you're not alone in this. So please be in touch if you have resources and referrals that I can give out to the listeners. And I thank Carol and I thank her and her firm, and all the work that they are doing. It's so good to have resources. For so long, there were none, or so limited that it was impossible to get the support you needed. And it just shouldn't be that way. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.